Hi, I'm Yaakov Katz, and welcome to another episode of the Jewish People Policy Institute's Inside Analysis on the State of Affairs in Israel and the Jewish World. On today's episode, we're actually going to talk about uh, Israel-Diaspora relations, a topic that we've touched upon over the last few months since we started this podcast and webinar looking that started obviously after October 7th and the attacks against Israel and since then with the war that Israel has been fighting against Hamas. But we're going to look at what is happening on the ground, try to get a better pulse of the status of this relationship. We are joined this evening by Gil Troy, a senior fellow at JPPI, and Nadia Bider, a fellow at JPPI. And we're also have an interview with Rabbi Steve Warnick, who is the senior rabbi at Beth Tzedek Congregation in Toronto. I recently had the opportunity to spend a Shabbat at Beth Sedek, which was very interesting, and got to see how they are operating as a synagogue and a congregation, not just in the post-October 7th reality and navigating exactly what it means to be a congregation and Rabbi Wernick being a pulpit rabbi at this time, but also they're actually growing, which is interesting when you think of the trend of what's happening with the conservative movement throughout North America, but they have actually grown in terms of member membership and people who are coming to services. Very interesting to see as someone who was able to participate in those services, but also interesting to hear Rabbi Warnick in his uh, interview with us. So we'll start with Rabbi Warnick, and then we'll go to Nadia and to Gil. Here we go. Rabbi Warnick, it's great to see you again, and thank you for joining the JPPI podcast. Thanks, Yaakov. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, I recently had the great privilege and pleasure of spending Shabbat with you at your community, at your shul, Beth Tzedek in Toronto. Really, to all the listeners and viewers, you you want to check this place out because there's some vibrancy that's there that... Um, is 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 interesting and is unique, I felt. And that's why I wanted to get you on here because what I found interesting is how the place is growing in recent years. So why don't you walk us through, which is against everything we're hearing about what's happening in generally in synagogues and in the conservative movement in particular. So why don't you walk us through what, what's happened there and how, how, have, how have you been able to pull this off? Well, First of all, uh, I've been able to pull it off because I'm very fortunate to arrive at a place where there's a terrific spiritual leadership team and professional team that is in place and really wonderful lay leaders who, at least when they, when I was interviewing five years ago, had a very clear understanding of where the synagogue was and kind of where they wanted it to go. And so the, the match process between rabbi and congregation was actually rather easy because the congregation was just so clear about what the mandate was. The mandate was to, how do you make big, small? Pathetic has historically been a very large community within Canada and within the conservative movement. It's historically been the largest synagogue in Canada and within the conservative movement with its membership ranging anywhere from 2000 households to 2400 households in its heyday. Um, we're pretty close to 2300 today. So we're coming back on that historic high. Um, so the first mandate was how do you make big small? The, the second was how do you engage the next generation, which is the problem that virtually every synagogue that I know of um, in any denomination is asking themselves. 
And the third uh, mandate was, how do you um, create what the congregation called more inclusive halachic positions, which was an eye towards matching conservative Judaism's um, welcoming approach with the, um, I would say, the, the, the liberalism of Canada in general, um, more welcoming for the queer community, more welcoming for Jews of color and uh, of adoption, uh, more welcoming for uh, for people with uh, disabilities, um, and what we would call like EDI kind of um, mm. positions. Um, and so it was very clear what the congregation um, was interested in. Um, when I was at USCJ, United Synagogue Conservative Judaism, um, part of what I was trying to get um, USCJ to help other congregations do was to turn their attention from the you know the more mundane business aspects of the synagogue is how do we get more members and how do we get more money so that we can get more members to really asking the questions about meaning and purpose that um that there's there's no membership without meaning there's no money without meaning there's no program without purpose and so in in many ways the the cultural shift that i wanted to bring about was um to kind of flip the paradigm um, in the in the heyday of congregational life, the concerned movement in particular, you could assume that people would join. They automatically saw the value in joining. Um, in recent generations, you have to prove the value added before people are going to commit their time, energy, um, and uh, treasure um, in uh, participating. Um, and so it's really a people-centered focus. Um, I, I relied heavily on um, the teachings and uh, work of Dr. Ron Wolfson and his book, Relational Judaism, um, which in many ways is a riff on the purpose-driven church by Rick Warren. Mm -hmm. um, and I relied heavily on other research of gathering, um, such as Dr. Priya Parker and her book, The Art of Gathering, um, of which also um, Harvard Divinity School, for example, uh, did uh, a lot of research about the changing ways in which people gather and um, how sacred institutions need to think about that in terms of their own uh, programmatic model. Um, so first and foremost, it was the, the emphasis was really just all about people. Um, how do we engage with our community? Um, what is it we want to know from that engagement? Um, how do we create a feedback loop where that engagement really drives our decision-making process? Um, and where our, our vision and our mission, which is to inspire and enable people to live meaningful Jewish lives, is really at the core of everything that what we what we do. So that was the start of it. So you said you're now at 2300, but when you started five years ago, you were at what number? Um, so it, it was hard to tell because of the process by which the synagogue um, uh, maintained membership for a couple of years, working and thinking and hoping that people would come back. Um, but at the um, at the uh, during COVID, for example, um, we contracted to about 1750, 1800. Um, at that point, it was like you were either a paying member or a non-paying member. Um, right. And there were very few non-paying members, um, but we contracted to about 1750 um, uh, of paying members. Um, and and those that were that were still on the books 
um, you know, m many of them hadn't been members of the shul for several years. So, you know, we kind of discounted um, that. Um, um, what's been driving the part of what's driving it is that as we were coming out of COVID, and we've been talking about it even before COVID, but as we were coming out of COVID, Pathetic, fortunately, was in a pretty strong position. Um, we, we had con contracted membership, but most of that membership was not even marginally engaged at that point in time. Mm -hmm. um, and um, we had we had managed because of some great expense controls, some fundraising and government grants to remain very healthy from a financial perspective as well. Um, and as I said, one of the mandates was how do you engage the next generation? So we had already started to plan um, an engagement strategy for the 20s and 30 cohort. Um, and, and that engagement strategy had really two components. One was to really lean into engagement, um, almost a sales kind of approach to it, where members of our staff were assigned specific households. Um, to engage with people, um, to lower the barrier of entry, which all the data showed, as I said before, that the way in which young people engage with membership organizations is show me the value first, and then I'll think about paying. So we we proposed to the board to basically do away with, with dues for anybody under the age of 40 years old. Um, and then we came up with a strategy as people were coming in um, how we would meet them, learn about them, and then design um, programming activities, religious experiences that were based on that learning. Right. But you also did is you offered them free membership, right, to uh, under the age of 40. And yeah, but but I, you know, so we thought if we got 30, 40 households a year, we'd be jumping up and down. Um, just because you give it away for free doesn't mean that people want it. No, for sure. But but it's all but but the the membership is a deterrent for some people, I'm guessing, who have to like you, you can get them in the door, maybe with also not having to pay. Then the question is, can you keep them? It can yeah, you keep well, them that, that's, retention? that's definitely that's definitely true. Like, you know, the, the number one question that people ask is like, you know, do they stay? Right. Um, I have one year of data on that. Come back another couple of years and we'll see what the trend is. But it, after one year of doing that, those that have aged out where the oldest member of the household has turned 40, 53 percent are now paying members of the show. OK, so that um, that speaks to the retention rate. And in the last now almost 20 months, um, 18, 19 months, um, we've picked up 700 new households just in that cohort of 20s and 30 years old. So, so it's like it's 10 times greater what we expected would be those that would walk in the door. Right. So um, one of the things I also noticed when I was there over Shabbat was, I want to say, I mean, th two or three things. One is you, all of the clergy, all of the rabbis wore these uh, tags, right? Name tags. Name tags, right. Right. Who Like labels. Who went, well, you know. Uh, who I, who am I and, and what do yeah. I, you know, what's my title? And I also noticed is that you did not sit down really for at all during the services or did your two uh, assistant rabbis uh, constantly moving throughout the room, constantly going, you know, a lot of spent, a lot of time spent at the front door meeting people as they walk in. And then when we were talking about it, what you also said to me, and you just mentioned this kind of briefly before is 
the engagement with people, like getting those lists of people, reaching out to people, like you, you, you're using, you're also very data driven. So, you know, the CRM and seeing, okay, which, which, which families I'm in charge of, I don't know, 400 families. Okay. I got to reach out. So that means one or two a day over the year. Those are just quick phone calls, set up a few coffees. I mean, like walk me through how that works. Well, so you're you're absolutely correct. You know, we focus on people first and foremost, um, and um, and and so during every everything that happens in the synagogue, um, we're actually very thoughtful about who's where and who's doing what. Um, so when I'm not on the Bima leading services at that moment, I'm either at the door or I'm walking around the the, the sanctuary um, talking to people and greeting people. Um, and if it's not me, it's somebody else. So there's always somebody doing that. Um, our board of directors um, and lay leadership are also doing that. Um, so it's not professionally driven. It's a cultural thing at Betsetic. When you walk into Betsetic, you should expect somebody from leadership, professional or lay, is going to welcome you, is going to inquire about you, is going to care about you. Um, that's part and parcel of what we're aiming to do. Um, and so we use the CRM, which is a, a it's a customer relationship management system. Um, we use the CRM in order to record um, those encounters. Um, it's a little bit harder to do it on Shabbat because you have to remember everybody you saw. Um, but when it's not Shabbat, um, every pastoral call, um, every coffee date, um, every uh, encounter with a congregant that is substantive other than just greeting in the hallway um, is recorded. And what that allows us to do is it allows us to, one is maintain, you know, the information. We're a very large system. Um, and where we struggle um, is in the follow-up. But the CRM allows you to set yourself a reminder, right? So if I'm, right. you know, if I'm visiting somebody in the hospital and, you know, I know that they're getting out in a in a couple of days and I want to check in with them on a month later, I can set myself a reminder. If that person happens to be in their 20s and 30s, I can also tag one of our staff people responsible for the 20s and 30s cohort um, to check in on them. And then they can see the note that I have so they know what the last encounter was and they can follow up on that. Um, obviously, if there's, we ask for permission to be able to share that. If there are privacy issues, we don't share that. You know, we we maintain that confidentiality. Um, but but that's what we do. Um, if there's um, birthdays, anniversaries, special occasions, um, we we call to say hello and see how people are, and we make notes um, to to keep track of that. And then at the end of the day, you can scroll through all the CRM notes only those that have access to it, right? It's not it's not a public document, but you can scroll through all the CRM notes. And if there's somebody that I, that I know and have a relationship with, but somebody else ended up having that relational contact, I can always pick up the phone, send an email or a text um, and do that. So that's one piece of it is just recording, um, you know, the, the pastoral work, um, the relational work, um, uh, the governance work, because that's another point of contact with lay leadership and with people um, and so forth. Um, what we're starting to do more systematically, and this is the thing that I'm really excited about, about the data-driven, is that in the 20s and 30s cohorts for young families, which we define as having one child under the age of 10, and couples 
with no children. Um, every household has now been assigned either a professional member of our team or a lay leader to contact them three or four times a year. We've also mm -hmm. teased out a series of questions that we want to make sure we ask everyone um, so that we can, it, it's basic community organizing, <laughs> so we can hear what people's concerns are. Um, where are they in life? What is it that they're looking to um, accomplish in terms of their Jewish journeys? Um, and then rather than sitting in a room thinking, oh, what program can we put together? Um, you know, if we if we learned that, um, you know, right now, for example, um, people are struggling with anti-Semitism and with um, the Israel-Hamas war. Um, you know, what are the elements that different segments of our community are interested in and feel that they need more information or more experience? So then we can create those specific programs and then turn back to all the people that we heard that theme from and invite them to come in. Hmm. It increases it increases the likelihood of participation and it increases that the people who we spoke to are going to say, hey, the shul really heard me. I'm going to bring my friends along because this is a place where I want to be. So you mentioned the uh, the war now between Israel and Hamas. And I'm curious how that plays out, because on the one hand, the sense that I got being there and talking a lot about the war, obviously, that over that Shabbat is very supportive and, and, and standing very strongly aside alongside Israel, but I'm guessing that there are other voices also within the community. And, and I can only imagine that in a, you know, any liberal progressive country today, like Canada, there's going to be, you're going to be pulled in multiple directions. How, how are you finding navigating that complicated reality? Well, for, first and foremost, I think it always starts from our values. Um, that Sedek candidate in particular is a very Zionist Jewish community. Um, as I explained to you when we were visiting, the bulk of Canadian Jewry <clears throat> came after the Second World War. And so there are multiple um, families that have survivors that are part of their experience. And so the notion of Israel as a refuge to um, first and um, second generation Canadians, and even down to third generation Canadians, is very, very palpable. Uh, in fact, the study in 2018 of the Canadian Jewish community showed that eight out of 10 Canadian Jews have been to Israel, and the average number of visits is 5.7, um, mm -hmm. which is astonishing um, in terms of the uh, relationship to Israel. So it starts from a very values-driven place, which for Canadian Jewry is very much Zionistic. Um, also within our values um, are our Western democratic values. So we support Israel as, as a democracy, um, even when we don't necessarily like the leadership that's selected in, um, which I think is fair. And we speak honestly um, about that. Um, uh, uh, many, many Canadian Jews um, were concerned about the judicial protests um, and changes that were being proposed by this government on October 6th. Um, but uh, on October 7th, like, like um, others, uh, all that was put aside for Afdut, for unity, and for supporting Israel at this time. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the the the, um, the very sharp, um, uh, virulent uh, rise of anti-Semitism 
um, has been a, a, a an eye opener even for um, the more progressive community. Um, but again, our values as as Canadians as and as Masorti Jews, as first and foremost, Israel has a right to defend itself. Um, Israel's war with Hamas is just. Israel's war is with Hamas and not with the Palestinians. Um, and we do expect um, the government of the Jewish people to behave according to Jewish values as it prosecutes that war. Um, and so the calls for um, humanitarian concerns um, and, and so forth are calls that resonate with us and that we maintain that it's tragic how many um, innocent Palestinians are um, are are caught up in this and are suffering um, as a result of this war, but we we don't equivocate on the fact that Hamas started it, and that Hamas is ultimately responsible for that suffering, and that um, we expect and demand that Israel um, will continue to do everything that it's doing and more in order to minimize the loss of innocent um, civilians. Um, we also talk from a data perspective, which is gets lost in this world. Um, today, um, something that you shared with us, and which I had learned previously, is that one looks at the if one looks at the history of the war in the last hundred years, the yeah. UN um, tells us that the civilian to uh, or the the combatant, combatant to civilian to ratio, civilian ratio. Yeah. is one to nine um, normally, and and even if you were to take Hamas's numbers as being um, true and factual. Um, then you also have to take Israel's numbers as being true and factual as to how many combatants have been killed in that. And if that's the case, then the number is one to one seven, one to one eight. It's yeah. less than two. Um, exactly. And there's there's just no, you know, when you look at it that way, um, you know, I know for myself, I sleep at night knowing that my homeland um, is behaving, um, at least the IDF, um, is behaving in the highest um, level of morality in fighting a just war that that I can um, imagine. The the last thing I would say on that is is that I think it's also important to like have other voices. Um, so we're um, bringing um, Mohammed uh, Dawashi. Dawasha. Yeah. So he's coming. Um, we're doing a partnership with the Israel Policy Institute in Canada and the Holy Blossom Temple, which is the Reform Synagogue down the street from us. Um, and he's coming um, to share his experience and his perspective as someone who has been very involved in building a shared society, who's, um, I think it was his cousin his or his cousin, nephew. His cousin Awad his cousin, was a medic right. at the Nova Music Festival. Was and murdered. was killed, uh, was killed, stayed to to provide medical care was and thinking that because he spoke Arabic, right, perhaps exactly. he could mitigate um, and was killed by Hamas. So he's coming to to provide um, you know the kind of voice that you don't always hear um, in these moments. Um, so we we speak from our values and we invite people who represent the broad range of those values to come um, and to to share with us their insight. But but we don't equivocate on those values. Yeah. Um, and it starts with with Zionut, with Zionism. Yeah. Well, Rib Steve, Rabbi Steve Warnick, I appreciate you uh, joining us. Thanks so much for finding the time to speak to uh, JPPI.
I was, I was, I mean, I found it to be very interesting a is a congregation, but be the fact that it's growing. And I think Nadia, maybe you, let me, let me just also correct myself in my introduction earlier. It's Dr. Nadia. Uh, but in my, in my, it, I think that you, you've been doing a lot of studying of, uh, and particularly looking at the demographics of religious, uh, affiliation involvement and, and where things are across the religious, not just the Jewish spectrum, but other religions as well, but primarily looking here at, at, at us as Jews I mean, it is something that's interesting is the fact that there is this growing participation. But I mean, let's talking more broadly, like what is drawing people today to synagogue? That's a really interesting question. Um, so um, as you kind of hinted to, there's this huge shift away from religion, certainly in Western societies, and Jews are no exception to that rule. Um, but what's interesting is that um, for some people, there is a draw in Jewish life. So for instance, post-COVID, some people are seeking community. That's a very strong push back into communal life. Um, I think um, Rabbi Wernick was right in pointing out that sometimes it takes a little bit of initiative on the part of Jewish organizations to bring people in. Um, it might not be something that they would think of doing themselves, but maybe, you know, like you said, once you can bring them in and show them that you have an attractive product, um, maybe that's something that's quite attractive and makes people stay. Um, I think, though, like you said, his congregation is unusual because we see that although the very religious sectors of the Jewish world are growing and engagement is really strong there, what we see in other streams and denominations is that there's more of a challenge, shall we say, um, getting people to be involved. Um, getting people to the synagogue is a particularly difficult one. So you see, you know, more innovative synagogues bringing in different kinds of programming, uh, things for children, things for different demographics. Um, those kind of things. But I think uh, without that, there's certainly a challenge there. Gil, I mean, obviously the October 7th and, and Israel's response <laughs> to it and the continued war has not really, uh, I'm, I'm guessing to a large extent, on the one hand has led people to be more, searching more for the community and for support. But uh, I don't know if we have data on that necessarily, but, but I would guess that that's the feeling maybe. And on the other hand, it is a controversial issue for a lot of communities, right? How, how are you? I mean, you, you have often put your your pulse on the or trying to get the pulse of the American Jews, particularly. And I'm even just refer to the headline or title of a piece that you recently wrote for the Jewish Journal: "American Jews Must Mobilize America's Silenced Pro-Israel Majority." So even kind of calling on them a little different, but also calling on for the American Jews to step up and play an active role. Absolutely. It's very complicated. The core group of American Jews are still very much in October 7th, very traumatized, very concerned. In synagogues that are thriving, you're actually hearing of uh, a return to synagogue, of people coming together on uh, on Shabbat, wanting to touch community, wanting to wanting to do something. And, uh, and the pain and the trauma and the fear is still there. Um, indeed, what Rabbi Wernick said, especially in Canada, is this uh, surprising wave of anti-Semitism. Uh, has 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 also been a factor. Um, I was actually in Florida speaking to a group of 150 Torontonian snowbirds, and uh, who spend the sun, who spend every winter in Florida. And they said this year they're not only happy to be there because of the sunshine, because it's a bit of a temperature gap with uh, Toronto, but also they really felt much safer in, in in Florida. They felt like the governor and the mayor, uh, even with whom they might have some disagreements ideologically, uh, had their back. But the bigger issue is the shift that 
while October 7th was a kind of mobilizing moment, uh, I think as Rabbi Wernick was struggling with, with each passing week, with each passing month, the degree to which even the most enthusiastic conservative and reform uh, American Jews and Canadian Jews are with Israel. They're in a society, in a media environment, which is so focused on what's happening with the Palestinians, so bombarding them with images of destroyed homes and burnt children, and 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 it is heartbreaking, right? It's it's it's, it's a tragedy, but it's very rare to find someone with Rabbi Wernick's moral clarity who is able to pull out of that and say, well, having learned obviously from uh, Yaakov Katz, uh, look at the kill ratio, look at what's going on, look at the morality. And I find more and more of my American Jewish friends just spinning uh, because it's so important for them to be accepted. It's so important for them to be a part of it. Uh, they're just spinning in, the, in this moral complexity. And, uh, and, and, and ultimately, I was just having a, a, this interesting conversation with a reporter today about this. The biggest problem is that I have no doubt that the arguments are correct for Israel, for Israel and, and Israel is on the side of the right, but many of the arguments are ugly. They're not an argument of, oh, here's a burned child. The argument is, well, we're only killing two to one rather than 10 to one. They go, you know, and it just, and, and there's a problem with that, especially when so many American Jews are, are trying to be inclusive, be accepted, uh, speak the progressive language. Progressives don't speak that language. But it also leads to, I'm sorry to say, a kind of remote control morality where you sit on the Upper West Side or the Upper East Side and say, oh, if this is the cost of having a Jewish state, maybe we don't need a Jewish state. Well, thanks very much for canceling me. Nadia, but based on the data that you've collected over the years and looking at religious participation and involvement, I mean, you know, what, what Gil's talking about, which is anecdotally of the, how people are want to be more connected, it, do you think that that's the direction that people are going? Like, is this, you know, I always say October 7th has to be for, for to really get the, the to do what, let me say differently, for October 7th to really be the monumental moment that it was for Israel, because it was on so many levels. It's not enough what we're doing right now in the Gaza Strip. That's only one element of October 7th that we're dealing with. Like there are fundamental societal issues that we have to deal with here in, here in Israel, how we were in our political system, the polarization, the division of the, the national burden of the military service, et cetera. And I, and I hope that October 7th will be the catalyst that will change all that in a positive way. I hope, I don't know. Do you think that October 7th is doing that and has the potential to be that positive catalyst for Jews around the world to be more engaged and involved? Okay, so I would say there are two parts to this. One is the response to the situation in Israel. And we have seen a kind of mobilization that I think people weren't expecting from diaspora Jews. And I don't think we'll know the full scale of it for a long time, if ever, because so many things were informally channeled. Um, not everything went through the big organizations, donations, people coming to volunteer, all that kind of stuff. The second aspect, which I think might be more powerful, is the rise of anti-Semitism. That is a result of the war. And there we do have some information. So we know, for instance, that on the one hand, anti-Semitism causes people to lower their profile. They're less likely to maybe attend certain events. They're less likely to wear outward symbols of you know, express their Judaism. But on the other hand, we know that it also leads people, for instance, to be more likely to send their children to Jewish schools. So France is a really good example of this, that there's a concern, although some people are concerned that anti-Semitism leads Jewish schools to be a target and 
we've seen that in Toulouse. Um, and we've seen the largest Jewish school in Europe instructing its pupils not to wear their school uniform on the way to and from school because it's considered too dangerous. Um, on the other hand, what we've seen is that people are nervous about... Well, by the way, um, where is that school, Nadia? I'm sorry? In London. In London. What, what's it called? Jews Free School, Jeffers. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, we see different responses. On the other hand, we do see... So in France, for instance, like I was saying, this uptick in uh, Jewish school enrollment rates seems to be a function of concern over the experience of those children in mainstream non-Jewish schools. And so Prisma has run a survey in North America and they asked about 110 schools, you know, what have they seen as a result of the war? And there has been an uptick of interest in people even thinking of switching their children mid-year or maybe at the end of the year from public schools into Jewish schools. Um, and it's kind of um, a sad state of affairs, but I suppose this is maybe a silver lining that there'll be some kind of move back into interest in Jewish communal structures, education, those kind of things. Interesting. And it's, it, it, it talks to, you know, coming back into the community or basically re-engaging with those old anachronistic structures and organizations that people that I guess the young generation thought were no longer relevant, the federation model, the synagogues, all these kind of institutions that young people in general have been moving away from. Right. Um, Gil, you know, the, 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 this idea though, of the anti-Semitism being the spark, right. It could also have the opposite effect. Nadia also pointed that out, right. That ultimately if I see, and I think that October 7th, one of the big, also a catalyst potentially, but it also showed this connectivity that exists between Jews around the world here in Israel, Jews are massacred along the border. And then there's an explosion of anti-Semitism in London and Paris and, you know, New York and and all over, except for Florida. Right? Bo <laughs> Boca is still safe. Um, but the the uh this shows that you if you it thought that what happens in Israel does not impact you as a Jew, it does. Now that could lead to people saying, okay, I'm gonna embrace it, or you know what? I'm gonna change my name from Yaakov to Jacob. Although with cats, I can't really get away from being Jewish, but you know, maybe come up with a different name for my last name too. I mean, is is that when you your no, your knowledge and your familiarity with the American Jewish community, North American Jews, do you think that that's something that would happen? Let's go back to the Pittsburgh massacre mm -hmm. when uh, the Tree of Life synagogue was shot up, uh, and it was a moment during tremendous tension between the American Jewish community, the mainstream American Jewish community in Israel, over Trump, because many more Israelis were pro-Trump and many more um, American Jews, let's say, were not so pro-Trump. And when um, your uh, former boss, uh, Naftali Bennett, as Minister of Diaspora Affairs, came to Pittsburgh, right. the first time in my life, I saw a bit of a backlash. I saw people saying, hey, wait a minute, we don't want Israel here. And they were, and there was almost a sense of like, Israel may be part of the reason why we're suffering from anti-Semitism. I didn't experience that at all since October 7th. In fact, on October 7th, I've seen three really important things. First, on October 7th, both here in Israel, and all over the world, many, many Jews almost surprised themselves in having what I call a peoplehood moment. Many Israelis who called themselves secular nevertheless experienced the rape, the pillage, the sadism as anti-Jewish, not just anti-Israeli. Many Jews in America, many campus Jews who didn't think on October 6th they cared that much, were shocked at how much they cared. 
And I call that the peoplehood moment. The second moment, which was the mobilization, I call the Zionist move. And it's remarkable, you're talking about the, you know, the legacy organizations, they raised over a billion dollars. And they actually showed that they still do have a very important function. And they've been remarkable in being the framework and being the the, the federation, the, 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 the coherent space where uh, American Jews and British Jews and French Jews find a way to express their love and express their power because there's power in numbers. But the third and I think most important thing for me is a Zionist. And all the writing I've been doing and all the speaking I've been doing both you know, personally and, 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 and broadly, I find that when I invite people to make sure that we don't just make this an anti-anti-Semitic moment and an anti-anti-Zionist moment, but really do what I call the jujitsu, J-E-W, and turn it into a positive moment and use it as a chance to reframe the conversation. And this goes back to some of the things that Rabbi Wernick was also talking about, about what does being Jewish mean to me? Not just how burdened I am by being a target, but how lucky I am to be a part of this family, how lucky am I am to be a part of this great Zionist adventure, how lucky I am to have a whole other level of what Rabbi Wernick was talking about, meaning and purpose and community and connectedness. And I think particularly these last four months, with all the tragedy and all the trauma, certainly in Israel, we felt the spiritual power. And one of the things I actually felt in the United States is they don't get enough of that. We every day see heroes and see generosity and American Jews who sometimes are acting generously, right? And doing extraordinary things, don't see it enough because they're too busy, they're, they're too caught in, the, in, in the, the media story and the trauma zone. And so one of the things we in Israel actually have to bring to America increasingly is that Zionist framework, that positive uh, notion and those amazing stories that we see of our young people surprising us. They're not the TikTok generation everybody keeps on saying, but they're the generation of heroes and of and 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 and, and not just of warriors, but of happy warriors, of people who really love their life and are fighting like crazy people in order to restore those values and restore the the, the restore the life that they wanted to. So I actually think this is a moment where we can reset, re-energize, renew. And when I speak to American Jews about this and Canadian Jews about this and British Jews about this, they're excited. And I think mm -hmm. we have to be very careful not to fall into the trauma vortex and really use this as a moment in a classic Zionist move to say we're not just firefighters, but tree planters and dreamers. Gil, you should do like, you know, when when my kids were younger, there was like the judo hug, right? You know, you could do the jujitsu hug, <laughs> you know. The, the after school activity for kids to learn jujitsu. Uh, Nadia, my mother, my, my wife thinks we have to add that with also with Krav Maga because you have to uh -huh. you have to have the spiritual power and also have a little bit of a power. Yeah. Power does make sense. The 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 uh, I mean, Nadia, do you think like what, what would your recommendation be then to community leaders, rabbis, or whoever it is to in to to get those to get these people more engaged, like a policy like a recommendation. Okay, so I think like Gil said, there's a huge opportunity here. Um, I think there are two different strategies to two different kinds of leaders. Firstly, I would say to those in Israel, there's a huge interest in or demand for or anxiety over campuses in the diaspora. And I think any kind of program that connects diaspora students to some kind of program that includes maybe a trip to Israel or a semester in Israel or something like that, I think would be hugely um, influential and formative for those people as they go on, because they will, the vast majority of them, continue to live in their countries. But I think they could be so much better informed. They could be able to access um, Israeli media. At the moment, for Jews and diaspora, one of the huge issues is that the entire narrative is shaped by what they see in their local media. And I think if they had access 
to more of the Israeli media, they would understand what's going on more and feel less conflicted about what's going on here. When you only see that narrative, but you know you have some loyalty to Israel, you're in a very difficult place. Um, the other one would be for local leaders in the diaspora. And I would say, like Gil said, take the opportunity, right? Don't just get sucked into this victimhood um, narrative. Take the opportunity. People are looking to engage. They're looking for contact. I think some of the people who've been the most affected by this conflict are people who were the most integrated. Um, we see kind of the shock that was felt in communities like Australia who felt really secure or people who are very much at the integrated end of the Jewish spectrum. So maybe don't have a lot of Jewish friends, don't have a, like Jewish family members. Maybe they're the only kind of identifying Jew in their household. Um, and suddenly they feel really alone, particularly as those people tend to be in more liberal milieu. And they suddenly for the first time in their lives looked around and found that people don't see things the way they do and maybe don't even see them the way that they would expect to be seen and that they're putting this whole conflict on them. And um, so I think there's huge potential to reach those people. It's going to require some innovative programming, right? These people have not been interested in what's been offered so far by definition, if they're in the part of the community that is not connected. But I think they're interested in some kind of connection. And I think they're interested in the openness that a lot of Judaism has nowadays, that people can construct their own meaningful Jewish lives. Mm -hmm. I don't think these people are all suddenly going to be walking through synagogue doors and joining in traditional prayer services, but I think they are interested in engaging Jewishly in a way that's meaningful to them and having contact with the community, and I think that's a place to really start working. Thank you for joining us today. You can find all our episodes where you get your podcasts. Please share widely and give us a five-star review. We will see you back here soon.